Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Making films can be a dangerous business. Since the 1910s, there's been a death every decade on a Hollywood film set. The first occurred in 1914 when actress Grace McHugh and camera operator Owen Carter drowned in the Arkansas River while filming across the border. Then there was the accident that took Brandon Lee's life on the set of The Crow. On March 31, 1993, Lee, who is the son of martial artist Bruce Lee, was shot by his co-star with a prop gun loaded with blanks. The gunpowder and the blank cartridge ignited, and a bullet fragment pierced Lee, who later died in surgery. Nearly three decades later, cinematographer Helena Hutchins was fatally shot in a similar incident when a live round was discharged from a prop gun fired by Alec Baldwin on the set of Rust. But the deadliest day in Hollywood history? That happened on March 15, 1931, when an explosion killed all but one member of a film crew. I'm Craig Baird, this is Canadian History X, and today I'm sharing the tragic story of the SS Viking disaster. When Fritjof Nansen stepped foot on the SS Viking on March 11, 1882, the ship was only a few weeks out of dry dock. The Arctic researcher would be a passenger on the ship as it embarked on its first journey. For the next five months, Nansen studied Arctic zoology firsthand and proved that sea ice formed on the surface of the water rather than below, which showed that the Gulf Stream flowed beneath the cold layer of surface water. All this scientific work was done while the ship hunted for seals off the coast of Newfoundland. In early July, the Viking became trapped in the ice but broke free in July 17th and returned to port in August. The researcher left the ship and our story behind, but the life of the SS Viking was still beginning. So how did this ship become involved in one of the worst Hollywood accidents in history? For that we head to 1902, when the Boring Brothers Company, based out of St. John's, Newfoundland, purchased the ship. Two years later, William Bartlett became the new captain and for the next 22 years, he would be at the helm as his crew hunted seals for their pelts. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. On March 26, 1910, the Viking had its first bit of bad luck when it ran ashore at St. Pierre Island off the coast of Newfoundland. It was a minor incident and the ship was able to get back into the water with assistance from another ship. Two days later, it reached port with 24,000 seal pelts. In 1926, William Bartlett retired after taking part in 23 voyages, where he hauled 234,997 seal pelts. G. Whitney took over as captain in 1927, 
and after completing one voyage was replaced by R. Barber, who completed two voyages from 1928 to 1929. Then R. Babcock took over in 1930, right before Robert Bartlett became captain, and he would take his role to the silver screen. Robert Bartlett was born to be on the ocean. He was the eldest child of the SS Vikings' original skipper, so being a captain was literally in his blood. He grew up in the beautiful seaside town of Burgess, Newfoundland, in a lovely cottage with wraparound veranda surrounded by gardens. By the age of 17, he had mastered his first ship and began a lifelong love affair with the Arctic. When Robert was 33, he captained the SS Roosevelt and sailed with explorer Robert Perry on his quest to reach the North Pole. They broke trail through 300 kilometers of the frozen Arctic Sea, and for their efforts, they were awarded the National Geographic Society Hubbard Medal. In 1913, Robert served as the captain of the Carleck under Willemur Stevenson on the Canadian Arctic Expedition that was sent to explore the regions of the Perry Archipelago, but they got marooned in ice in September of that year. Stevenson left the ship on the pretext of finding fresh meat for the crew and never returned. Instead, he spent his time searching for new islands to catalogue with a small party that followed him off the ship. Meanwhile, Robert Bartlett spent months stranded on the ship as it drifted west in the ice. Bartlett and the other 24 men on board assumed Stephenson and his party were dead. So, Bartlett and Katavik and the Inuit hunter walked 1,100 kilometers southeast to reach Alaska, where they launched a rescue of the surviving crew. They left them on the ship near Wrangell Island, off the coast of Russia, and despite Bartlett's best efforts, only 12 survived. Four years later, Bartlett was at the helm of another ship. In 1917, he captained the Neptune and rescued members of the Crocker Land Expedition who had been stranded in the Arctic for four years. He became popular among the press and the public and those he had rescued, and that fame was about to skyrocket. In 1925, he became captain of his own ship, the F.E. M. Morse, and he launched several important scientific expeditions to the Arctic, sponsored by American museums, the Royal Geographical Society, and the Explorers Club. In 1930, he took over command of the Viking for one season, and around this time, Varric Frissel was looking to make a film about the annual Newfoundland seal hunt, and he needed a legendary captain. Born to a wealthy family, Varric Frissel developed a keen interest in film from an early age. He grew up with confidence nurtured by his privileged background and after being privately educated, he entered Yale University in the fall of 1922. Handsome and well over six feet tall, he excelled in rowing and water polo and became a member of the Wiffenpoofs, an a cappella group. While at school, he attended a lecture held by Dr. Wilfred Grenfell about Labrador, which inspired him to visit and explore the northern wilderness. He was attracted by the adventure, inspired by the landscape. From September 1921 until April 1922, he worked in Labrador as a volunteer for the International Grenfell Association. While at university, he was a secretary, treasurer, and president of the Yale Grenfell Association, and in the summers, he returned to Newfoundland and Labrador. In 1925, he explored the Churchill River, which flows east from the Smallwood Reservoir into the Atlantic Ocean. It is the longest river in Atlantic Canada, and Frissel was the first person to capture the mighty Churchill Falls on film. The footage was released as a short documentary entitled The Lure of Labrador, which saw modest success. 
He graduated with a Bachelor of Philosophy the following year, and in 1927, he wrote an account of his explorations and submitted it to the Geographical Journal for publication. Titled Explorations in the Grand Falls Region of Labrador, it earned him membership in the Royal Geographical Society. He then spent six weeks from February to April working aboard a sealing steamer and shooting film when he was not on duty. He was fascinated by the adventure of the hunt and felt it was no fun killing seals. About 40 minutes long and using 10,000 feet of film, it would become the Great Arctic Seal Hunt released in 1928. He then worked as a cameraman for Robert Joseph Flaherty, famous for 1922's Nanook of the North. From 1928 to 1929, he shot in the southwestern United States and combined documentary footage with a dramatic plot, but the film was never released and the uncompleted footage was later lost. He intended to make a feature-length film on the seal hunt, and with the success he had seen from his previous movie, he formed the Newfoundland Labrador Film Company and a year later embarked on his most audacious project. After securing a distribution deal with Paramount Pictures for $100,000, Frissel was supposed to begin shooting in February. Titled Vikings of the Ice Field, the film involved going to Newfoundland and shooting on location on ice flows using state-of-the-art magnetic wire recording technology to record sound. It was supposed to be the first film to record sound and dialogue on location. But first Paramount insisted that Frissel hire an experienced director and writer and for that, he turned to George Melford. George Melford began his career as a stage actor in Cincinnati and joined the Calum Company Motion Picture Studio in 1909, hoping to break into film. At first, he was hired to portray various characters, but in the autumn of 1910, he was sent to the West Coast by the studio to work with a film crew where he discovered he actually preferred to be behind the camera. In 1911, he co-directed his first short film, Arizona Bill, based on a script he wrote, and for the next four years he directed 30 films for Calum Studios. His most famous film was released in 1921. The Sheik, starring Rudolph Valentino, set attendance records and grossed $1.5 million at the box office. Ten years later, George Melford was in Newfoundland and Labrador, about to helm Frissel's first full-length feature film. Written by Garnet Weston and set on the coast of Newfoundland, it was a story of a rivalry that develops between Jed Nelson, a seal hunter, and Luke Oram, a local man considered a jinx. The seal hunter goads Luke into accompanying him on an arctic sealing expedition on Viking, because he was worried that Luke would steal his girlfriend, Mary Jo. The ship would be commanded by Captain Barker, and after the two men end up in a hunting party on ice floes, they would eventually find themselves stranded. This is when Jed tries to kill Luke, but the snow blinds him and his gunshot misses. Not exactly Citizen Kane. Louise Huntington would play Mary Jo. Her first film, Not Exactly Gentleman, was completed just before she began work on Frissel's picture. Captain Robert Bartlett, who commanded the SS Viking for a year and was the son of its original skipper, would play the captain of the ship. You could say it was the role he was born to play. Charles Sterrett starred as Luke Oram, the lead role. He began acting in 1926 and his career as a romantic lead grew over the next few years. Principal photography began in February 1930 around St. John's various neighborhoods. And while Melford directed, Frissel took a small crew to the Grand Banks of the SS Ungava, which was Captain Robert Bartlett's ship at the time, to Labrador to film action sequences on the ice. 
The conditions were arduous aboard the vessel and on the ice, but the film was completed and was screened to a private audience at the Nickel Theatre in St. John's on March 5, 1931. The response was positive. The film's strength was the real-life scenes contributed by Frissel rather than the awkward love story, but Paramount declined to release the film. Hoping to salvage the film and regain Paramount's support, Frissel went back onto the ice fields to get new footage of big waves, tall icebergs, and hopefully a storm or two from the deck of the ship. To shoot additional material, he hired the SS Viking to take himself, his dog Cabot, and the film crew out onto the water. On March 9, 1931, the ship left the harbour under the command of Abram Keane. While Robert Bartlett excelled at keeping people alive in the harshest Arctic Ocean conditions, Keane was known for being part of one of the most tragic sealing disasters in Newfoundland history. Born in 1855 in Newfoundland, Abram Keane began to work as a cod fisher at 18 and soon moved into seal hunting. In 1872, he participated in his first sealing season, setting off in a crew of 70 men. After 10 years, he became a captain and commanded the Hanny and Benny, a sealing ship during the 1883 and 1884 seasons. And if there was one thing that Keane was good at, it was killing seals. Over the course of his career, it's estimated he hunted 1 million seals, averaging 155 seal pelts per day from 1889 to 1895. On March 31, 1914, Keane captained the SS Stefano as he departed for the sealing season. The SS Newfoundland was captained by his son, Westbury. At 7 a.m., Keane signaled to his son that he had spotted seals. Westbury's crew walked 11 kilometers over the ice floe to meet up with Stefano. When they reached it, they had dinner. After their meal, Keane then ordered them onto the ice to hunt for seals even though the weather was worsening. Keane believed they would simply complete their task and be able to return to the SS Newfoundland. Westbury assumed that his crew would be staying on his father's ship. There was no communication because Keane removed the radio from his ship to save money on the license. Meanwhile, the men wandered on the ice struggling to find their way back to either ship in a raging blizzard. After three days, they knew something was wrong, as neither ship had heard from the crew. Of the 132 men who went out on the ice to hunt seals, 78 died from drowning or exposure. A commission of inquiry ruled that the deaths were an act of God or inevitable. Keane escaped punishment but became a hated man among the sealing community and 3,000 people submitted a petition asking for his arrest but nothing came of it. Keane paid it no heed and went back the following season and continued to be a captain on sealing vessels. And that is who was at the helm of the SS Viking when it left St. John's on May 9, 1931 to shoot additional footage. Aboard were a group of sealers, the film crew, Cabot the dog, Frissel, and two stowaways. The two stowaways were young men hoping for work, but Captain Keane found them and confined the men to the forecastle of the ship to be turned over to police when they docked at port. For the next few days, it was business as usual for the sealers and the film crew captured all the action. Frissel's wish for storm footage was granted as the ship dealt with high winds for several days. Clayton King, the wireless operator, wrote in his diary, Heavy seas were boarding her, sweeping the length of the decks. The hands were busy at the pumps. The engineers down below were watching their gauges with anxious eyes. Slipping on the oily deck plates, they nursed the powerful engines like a mother caring for her only child. The weather calmed on March 13th and the ship sailed to Bonavista Bay for repairs and to offload the two stowaways. The next day they sailed out in search of seals. King wrote the crew were in high spirits. 
That night, Frizzle took a white tablecloth from the galley and turned it into a movie screen to show some of the footage. Over the next two days, heavy ice began to spread down the White Bay and on March 15th, after the sealing day was done, Keane ordered the ship butted into the ice jam to prevent it from moving in the night. Clayton King wrote, At 7pm, when off White Bay, heavy ice was encountered and the captain decided to stand into the ice and bed down for the night. With the ship resting against the ice, Keane went to his cabin to sleep. On the way, he saw Frissle and said, Well, Varric, here we are, and here we are to stay. That is until tomorrow. Perhaps we'll have a bit more luck then. We're rolling a bit with the swell running under the ice, but we'll do no harm to this good old hull. Meanwhile, Clayton, the wireless operator, went to the mess to get something to eat and found several members of the ship and film crew drinking in the saloon at the front of the ship. As King walked to the mess, he saw Frissel writing on a piece of cardboard with his dog Cabot at his feet and asked what he was doing. Frissel told him he was putting up warning notices. King read danger in big block letters. Frissel said, If we're not careful, the boys coming down the companion way carrying lighted cigarettes might cause an explosion. You know, we have plenty of explosives aboard. Frissel was referring to the gunpowder and dynamite stored on the ship. This was not unusual because they were routinely used to break up the ice around a ship to prevent it from being encased in ice, which is what happened to the Franklin Expedition, as you might remember from my episode from 2023. On the SS Viking, Frissel worried that Keane's command of the ship had a very lax policy when it came to safety. He had warned people about the explosives on board before, and at one point, he saw a man smoking a cigarette while sitting on a gunpowder keg. Frizzle asked King about some old flares that were stored in the captain's stateroom and said, Better bring them down immediately. They're serious menace if kept there. King asked a man named Carter to retrieve the flares and set them on a nearby table. Upon his return, Carter asked for a cigarette, which he received, but he did not light it. Frizzle then said, Those flares are damaged and are not safe to keep aboard. Better take them out and throw them over the side. Carter picked up the flares and left towards the starboard stern side of the ship, which was in the direction of the storeroom housing the dynamite and gunpowder. What happened next is unknown. But if you're keeping track, there was a cigarette, faulty flares, and a lot of dynamite. At 9pm, as the ship sat in the icy water, and without warning, it suddenly pitched. King wrote, A few seconds after Carter's departure, the ship gave a terrific lurch and listed over to an angle of about 40 degrees. All was in an instant chaos, and all hands were thrown clear of the mess table, the stove capsized. The worst was not over. The ship righted itself immediately and Captain Keane came running out of his room and towards the deck. Everyone in the mess got to their feet and began to clean up the dishes and food that had been thrown onto the floor. But just as it happened a few minutes earlier without warning, a massive explosion tore through the ship, blowing the stern off the vessel and killing everyone sitting in the saloon. King was knocked unconscious but wrote later, Almost immediately there followed a terrific blast from the aft end of the saloon. For me there followed, oblivion. Deck planking came tumbling down as flames tore through the hull of the ship. Men were thrown while others were crying for help trapped in the burning ship. One of the firemen on board, Pat Breen, was blown across the ship. He suffered a deep gash in his leg and heard men crying out for help from below near the boilers and engines. He could not get to them as all routes to the engine room were blocked by heavy timbers and white-hot flames. 
Captain Keene woke up on the ice 12 feet away from the ship and injured from the blast that had sent him flying through the air. When King came to, he was surrounded by debris and had to push timber off his legs to escape the growing fire. He could hear rushing water and realized that it was the sound of blood running down the side of his head. Both his hair and clothing were on fire, and as he patted his head to put out the fire, his hair came out in clumps. King was able to put out the flames and pulled himself along the floor to find help. Meanwhile, small explosions tore through what was left of the ship as chaos and fire reigned. King reached the edge of the ship and threw himself over the side. Injured, he fell into the North Atlantic and struggled in the frigid water. A man named William Kennedy was nearby and called to him for help, but King was useless as his legs were shattered. And that's when another explosion tore through the ship and sent a man into the air and onto the piece of ice. King saw the man's head was split open and watched in horror as the body convulsed and then slipped into the ocean. King struggled to stay afloat when suddenly he was pulled out by Harry Sargent, a fellow crew member. Sargent also grabbed Kennedy who had fallen into the water and pulled him onto the ice. As the ship sank into the cold water, they could see more explosions. Sergeant Kennedy and King then got onto a piece of the ship's stern which had been blown off. It would be a safer refuge than a piece of ice. King, Sergeant, and Kennedy watched the wreckage as they drifted away from a larger group of survivors on another piece of ice. King wrote, It was a cold winter's night and regardless of all the fire we had already gone through, it was now necessary to build a small one in order to live. Running from one fire to save our lives and now having to build one for the same reason. As they drifted, the Viking disappeared beneath the waves. A total of 27 men and one dog had died on that ship. King wrote, The old Viking, wreathed in a purple halo, was finishing her last cruise down beneath the ice-covered surface of the sea. Among the survivors on the ice was Pat Breen. He had made his way to the main deck of the ship and helped men get off the ship before going back in to help others. He also found Captain Keane on a piece of ice and helped him find the other survivors. A small boat called a dory was sitting nearby and clear of the wreckage. Breen put the captain and another seriously injured man named Dick Adams into it, and the survivors pushed the boat on the ice towards Horse Island for 15 kilometers. Now, residents of the island were already aware something bad had happened. They just left evening church services and were walking home when they suddenly felt a small earthquake. They looked out into the ice and saw something burning on the water, and they realized it was a ship. The wireless operator at Horse Island Station was notified and he sent out a message calling for help. Meanwhile, the survivors made their way to the island, where they were met by a family who took them to the village. Another telegraph was sent out stating, Men continually landing, around 20 dead, many injured. Two ships, the Foundation Franklin and Sagona, were then dispatched. The Sagona carried three doctors, two nurses, and medical equipment. And while the men waited on Horse Island, locals fed them and treated injuries as best they could. But three men were missing. King, Sergeant, and Kennedy were still floating somewhere out in the icy water. For days, Clayton King slipped in and out of consciousness. He was in terrible pain and severely injured. Both of his legs were twisted to unnatural angles and badly broken. Both of his feet were gangrenous and suffering from frostbite. One eye was injured and he was seriously burned. Harry Sargent had a slight injury to one eye while William Kennedy had severe burns. On Horse Island, survivors told rescuers of the three survivors that had drifted away. 
a wireless message was sent out stating, Six men left here to search for operator. Out at sea, Sergeant saw steamers in the distance but had no way to signal their location. Sometimes what he thought were steamers were nothing more than low clouds on the horizon. And as they waited for rescue, Sergeant kept them hydrated by melting water in a tin can he had found. And on March 17th, the three survivors were found by the SS Beothic, 25 kilometers from where the ship exploded. King wrote, There was a ship drawing close. My sight was not so bad that I could not see her now. Thank the Lord, it was good enough for that. I wouldn't wish to have missed it. Safely on the ship, King saw his right leg was twisted up alongside his body as the leg bone was exposed and had frost shining on the lacerated flesh. Before he lost consciousness, he told the men to keep his watch, but throw his clothes overboard. He never wanted to see them again. Once the rescue ship reached shore, King was taken directly to the hospital and went through several operations. Both his legs had to be amputated, but a small projectile from the explosion remained buried in his head for the rest of his life. He remained in hospital for three months until July of 1931. Kennedy survived only long enough for the rescue ship to reach St. John's before he died from injuries and exposure. Sergeant simply walked away. He was one lucky man and the only one from the film crew to survive. As newspaper reports went out, the number of dead was inflated. One newspaper reported 150 dead. The Prime Minister of Newfoundland, Sir Richard Squires, read a message to the House of Assembly stating, Portion crew, Viking arrived, reporting men lying on ice floes broke up. The Newfoundland government ordered a government commission to determine what had happened. The commission ruled there was no definite cause and theorized that gunpowder was mishandled. And with most of the film crew dead, including producer Varric Frissel, the incident became the largest loss of life in film history. But what happened to the film and the footage? Despite the terrible loss of life, the movie was released in North America on June 21, 1931, titled The Viking, and received mixed reviews. The New York Times called the story sketchy, but noted it had some marvelous scenes of the ice fields and men seal hunting. Theatre Guild magazine called it a melodramatic movie with an uninteresting screenplay. The film Daily gave it a poor review, also citing the weakness of the story against the beautiful cinematography. The director of the film, George Melford, was not on the Viking when it exploded, and he went on to shoot seven more films between 1931 and 1937. In 1939, he returned to acting and appeared in dozens of films in uncredited roles until 1960. He died one year later in 1961 at the age of 84. Louise Huntington, one of the film's stars, only appeared in two other films after The Viking, Fair Warning and The Man Who Came Back. Both were released in 1931. She returned to Broadway and did some television work later in life and died on June 2, 1997 at the age of 92. Charles Startlett, the star of The Viking went on to appear in 131 westerns over the next two decades, all with Columbia Pictures. He retired in 1952 after his contract ended. Independently wealthy from wise investments, he never returned to acting, and died in 1986 at the age of 82. Robert Bartlett, the famous captain from The Viking and Arctic Hero, never appeared in another film. In 1944, he was awarded the Perry Polar Expedition Medal. He died in 1946 at the age of 70. The Canadian Coast Guard vessel CCGS Barlett is named for him, 
and Canada Post released a stamp to honour him in 2009. His childhood home, Hawthorne Cottage, his family's beloved homestead became a national historic site where today you can get a unique insight into Newfoundland seafaring life and one of Canada's legends of exploration. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the SS Viking disaster. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.